We've been talking about helping without hurting, and I hope that in some way this has met you where you are at, because this can pertain to helping that neighbor. This has to do with helping that family member that's just stuck in a really bad place. This has to do with that stranger that walks up to you in the grocery store parking lot and says, hey, can you spare five bucks? I mean, this, this goes to all areas of our lives. And it's not just there individually between you and someone in need, but it has to do with what we do as a church, and not just Northwest, but as the people of God and how we interact with a world that is very significantly broken and how God wants to change that. And so we've, we've walked through redefining what poverty really is. And we've talked about how getting out of that means that we need a new diagnosis. We need to look at poverty in different ways than we have before. And once we have a new diagnosis, then we need a treatment plan and a, a different way of tackling that. And I hope this has been a reminder to you that this is really spiritual work. This isn't just about economics or public policy. This is the work of God and his people. And then we said, well, you know, a new diagnosis leads us to a new treatment plan, and then we've got we've to work the plan. We've got to stay with the treatment to get it to work, because some of these things aren't going to change just because we've made a certain decision. They're going to require that we work them out, and we, they take time, and we work with the people that are there, and that's where we're going to come to today. So if something is going to change in the world, and you guys have heard this over and over again, you'll hear it many, many more times from me and others. If something's going to change, it's got to start somewhere, and it should start with us. And so we're going to talk about how it should start with us this morning. I want to remind you in that whole process as we talk about poverty and brokenness and what that looks like in our context. Um, I don't really need to remind you of this, I'm sure, but you've seen it. This kind of stuff, it's so big, it's so enormous, it's so overwhelming that Pastor Hink can't fix it. Northwest Free Methodist Church can't fix it. In fact, Free Methodist Church, FMC USA, they can't do it. Um, and in fact, if we marshaled every follower of Jesus Christ all around the world and got them to tithe 10%, and then the churches that gathered that in to use that in the most appropriate means, I would suggest to you we still probably could not address all the issues of poverty. And, and here's what I think is at the core of that. I think that at the very heart of it, we really need God's intervention to address these issues. So we can throw all of our money in the offering plate. We can throw all of our time at volunteering at places that help people with needs. We can change our mindset and alter the philosophy of care. But if God isn't in it, it's still not going to get us there. Because I think at the end of the day, when relationship is broken and poverty is the result, the healing of that requires God's healing. And that's why I think this is spiritual work. Now, having said that, oh, let me just remind you again that I am greatly indebted to these guys, Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert, and um, they work at the Chalmers Center, and um, uh, if you go to the Chalmers, I think it's chalmers.org, there's all kinds of resources there, and um, hopefully over the next year or two, we're going to use some more of those in small group and things like that. So 
This book has really guided my thoughts. It has helped me avoid some pitfalls. It's made me change some of the things that I've done in the past. And often it makes me question what I'm doing at the moment. So there you go. I want to remind you at the outset that um, our world functions on systems. And if, if I have to remind you of that, then it's probably because you have been uh, kind of duped into believing in our American culture that the world uh, is run by individuals. We're so individualistic here in America. It's me and what I intend to do, and I can pull myself up by my bootstraps, and um, I can do it my way kind of thinking. We're incredibly individualistic. In fact... It's probably true that Western culture in the world today is the most individualistic culture that's ever existed in history by virtue predominantly of technology. Technology has allowed us to go, I don't, I don't need anyone else to help me farm a piece of ground and raise crops so that I have something to eat. I don't need anyone else to, you know, to be part of my tribe so we can go hunt together. I can do this all on my own. And um, a few years ago, there was uh, a movie that came out. It's a little bit dated now, so if you go watch it now, we'll kind of laugh because the technology seems a little goofy compared to what we have going now. But the movie was called The Net, and Sandra Bullock was in The Net, and it was about this young lady who was a computer programmer and had had some hard things in her life and losses in her family and had elected to pursue a career where she could just sit at a computer terminal relatively, extremely isolated from people around her. And so she, she was, at the time, it was kind of a new novel thing, but she was ordering pizza online and having it delivered to her house so she didn't have to go outside and go grocery shopping. And now we would laugh and go, you know, you can just go on Amazon and order all your groceries all the time and you don't have to just eat pizza. I mean, things have improved since then. But it is entirely possible for a person in our high-tech world and in our culture to be extremely disconnected from people around them, and the brokenness just becomes more and more evident. And in that, we have set up certain systems, and there are systems that we rely on to make sure that things happen and things get done. So we have systems of governance, and we have systems of economics, and we have systems of public protocol and etiquette. And there's things that we are trained in, and we train the kids in them to make sure you know how to do this, because this is the appropriate way, and if you don't do this, you're a bad citizen. And in America, we've developed some incredible systems, some some amazing systems and we're still reminded all the time that these systems fail and so i could you know i could tell you you know we have a an electrical grid system in the united states and so when you go home today and it starts to get dark you can flip on a switch in your house and your house will be lit a few years ago there was an event i think i believe it was in the state of idaho where uh a limb fell on a power line that came from a very key substation and it broke the lines. And they found out as a result, it was just exactly the right place, the right station with the right wire that broke. And the entire West Coast was without power for about 10 hours. Now, 
In our day and age, when that happens, because we're so reliant on that system, everything shuts down. Maybe you've had this experience where you go to Walmart or you go to another store and you walk up to the front and you're about to check out and you think everything's great and there's a long line though and you get there and they say, our computer systems are down. And, you know, or, or maybe it's not that the computer systems are down, but you come up to the front and they go, we cannot accept cards right now because our card reader system isn't working. I had that one just this week. And then there's my favorite for this week. It was a little bit embarrassing and frustrating, but went to the airport this week to meet uh, Krista Cox, was coming home from uh, Mozambique, and she, her flight was delayed, and she got in at about midnight. So we were there, and we greeted her, thanked her for going, and celebrated a little bit, took a couple pictures of what she looks like after about 30 hours of travel. And uh, we had parked our car there in the parking at the airport. And, and, and the new airport's wonderful, but the way you get out of parking is high-tech. And so I had my little card for the parking, and I, I slid that in, and then it said, okay, you owe a little bit of money, slide in your card, your credit card. And I had, all I had with me was my debit card, and I knew there was money in my account, so that wasn't a problem, but I slid the card in, and it spit it back out, and it said, card read error. So I'm sitting there in my car with this machine next to me, and so I just kept putting the card in, and it kept spitting it out, card read error, and if you look at my debit card, it's pretty worn out. And so I knew that's probably why. And I sat there and I sat there and pretty soon cars lined up behind me. They all want to go home after midnight or to their hotel or wherever they're going. And they're lined up and I hit the call button. I said, I have a problem. It says there's a card read error and I can't pay for my parking and the gate won't go up and I'm a prisoner here. And the guy goes, oh, we have this happen all the time. We'll send somebody out. And so there we sat hazards on, line behind us, unhappy people, and the system failed. Now, thankfully, I got out eventually sometime the next morning, <laughs> technically speaking. But, you know, systems fail us. Human systems fail us. And so we recognize that human systems fail, and they fail in part because people fail. People fail us. We get disappointed by people. And so the work that people do is also somewhat faulty. And so the systems that people create fail. In fact, um, Bill Randall's here, and he can tell you that when you are studying an airplane, an airplane has different kinds of systems, particularly uh, a high-tech and uh, a high-performance aircraft have a lot of systems, don't they, Bill? And uh, those systems are made by people. <laughs> and those parts and pieces wear out. But if you're in that plane, when that system fails, whatever the system is, the electrical system, the hydraulic system, whoever's flying that plane knows all about it and wants to know all about it, and it gets their attention, and it is sometimes catastrophic when systems fail. So people fail. Their work fails at times. It was good work, and it was good work that lasted for a while, but parts wear down and ideas get run over by new ideas and, and systems fail. And I would just suggest to you, uh, and this is a thought that I'm, I'm still working with and processing myself, is that when systems fail, it's generally worse than when people do. Generally speaking, when a system fails, it does more damage than a person. Because a person doesn't have the power that a system does. 
person has a certain amount of power, and usually we have more power than we think we do, but when we come together and do something cooperatively and we create a system and that system fails us, or even worse than that, a system, we create a system and we design a system to cause harm, that system is going to fail far worse than an individual would. And so when we come together and in our best wisdom or the best wisdom of the leaders we elect, they put together a system and say, here's a system that will take care of people who are going hungry and need a place to live and, and, and can't work and have their own job. And so we'll put together what we used to call a welfare system. We don't call it that anymore very much. But we put together a system. We're trying to take care of people. But eventually those systems fail. They cannot possibly dream up and think through every possible exigency, every possible scenario that comes their way that, oh, when this person comes in, this is what they need. And when this person, we try, but eventually somebody comes on, we go, we've never met a person like this before because people are unique and God has created them in unique ways and they have their own story. And so the system may be a fantastic system, but eventually it's going to fail somebody. We have a healthcare system and eventually, you know, somebody's going to get sick or they're going to get injured and things are going to happen and people go into, into you know, high gear and EMTs show up and we get there and there's emergency rooms and doctors and there's all kinds of technology. But eventually something there is going to fail and when it does, oftentimes it fails badly. We try not to. We want to make sure that everything will run as smoothly as possible, but systems fail. And here's the worst part about it, is systems tend to have no built-in method to correct failures. People do. You see, we have been crafted, we were created with this need to have God as a part of our being. This, that God is somewhere inside of us. That God is somewhere around us talking to us. We were built to need God. And as we encounter and listen to him, that gives us the ability to navigate things that we can't anticipate. And so we have this, and calling it an autocorrect is probably not a a good way to term it, but we have this ability that we can see things coming and sometimes by the intelligence that God gave us, but oftentimes for us as believers, by the simple directing of the Holy Spirit, we can go, oh my goodness, let's not do that. Why? I'm not sure, but God seems to be laying on our hearts that we should not go that way. And we can correct and we can navigate things and we have this kind of this autocorrect in us to be able to say, okay, we can make things better. And there are some systems where we try to build those things in around us. But by and large, systems fail because systems don't anticipate that they're going to fail. Most people I know, when they put these things together, they're like me. I put this thing together, I go, wow, this is going to work. If you've ever bought a piece of furniture from Ikea, and you start putting that thing together, and they're bizarre, and there's pieces you've never seen before, and you wonder what the engineers have been doing. But... You start putting this together, and all of a sudden it starts looking, and you go, wow, this is going to work. I'm going to have a bookcase. And uh, hopefully you end up with a bookcase. But we don't anticipate that, that, well, you know, I created a system, but it's terrible. Occasionally we do that, and then we anticipate that it's going to fail, and then we just sort of live in fatality. But systems fail us, and so we need to accept that that's going to happen. And so people who start out life with incredible promise and possibility... Things happen. 
and they get hurt and they get held back and they get pushed in a way that they never wanted to go and there are forces at work in their lives that keep them from things like education and job market and then we go wow well that's just too bad we didn't anticipate that happening for you but that's where you're at and then there's forces at work there that are internal where we just do things that aren't smart and aren't, aren't good and we hurt ourselves and People sit back and go, wow, that's not the way that was supposed to work. That's kind of bad. Glad it's not me. And so systems that are at work do more damage than just the people. And in fact, I would suggest to you, there are systems that work around you that can do more damage to you probably than you can do to yourself. And like I said, it's a concept I'm working with and trying to wrap my mind around, but um, I see it. And in fact, when we do things collectively, we're capable of greater good but we're also at the same time capable of greater evil that doesn't mean we quit doing things collectively because there are things that require that we work together and put things together in a system now I want to go to scripture because in all of that discouragement I want to remind you of what Christ did when Christ prayed for us. You see, in this passage in John chapter 17, Jesus is about to be betrayed. I mean, he's coming to the end of his life, and he knows that this is coming, and he, he anticipates that the system that he made with these disciples, these friends that he gathered around him, it's going to fall apart. They're going to abandon him. They're going to run away. They're going to deny him. He knows that. He anticipates that. And yet, in John chapter 17, he prays for them. And as he's praying for them, we read here, in, starting in verse 20, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me. I'm just going to stop there for a moment and remind you, Jesus prayed for you specifically. Jesus has prayed for you specifically. He prayed for all who would believe in him through the message of the disciples. And so here is Jesus, and he's praying, I'm, I'm about to leave the world in human form and send the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. But he's praying before he leaves, and he says, I'm praying for these guys around me, these friends of mine, but not only for them, but for anyone who believes in me because they hear them or see them or encounter them. And so we go on forward into 21. I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me, and that you love them as much as you love me. If you're ever having a bad day, read John chapter 17, and you're reminded that here's what Jesus prayed for you. As he's getting ready to leave, and, and he understands the, the incredible brokenness of the world, he's about to die on the cross to address that brokenness. He goes, you know, Lord, what I really want for these people is that they will be one together, that they will be in me, and we will be in them, 
and the world will know because of their unity with us. And he calls it this perfect unity. May they experience the perfect unity, knowing the love of God and remaining together. So keep that in mind. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But here's, here's the thing. When we talk about systems and economics and how people are hurt and broken and relationships are, are torn apart because of, of sin and subsequently we have people who are living in poverty and don't have food to eat and incredible insecurity. I, I'm reminded that, that the heart of their need is their need to be connected to God. They need to have God in their heart or as Jesus prayed, as we look at what Jesus prayed for, that they would be in us, that there would be this co-union, or as we just did this, and the term we use for this, this communion, that, that we would take in the being of God in Christ and it becomes part of us, and it's, comes to the point where I hope if you ever tried to dissect, dissect me and say, okay, well, let's see which parts are actual Hendrix Smitterks and which parts are of God that it'd be impossible to distinguish between the two. I'm not sure I'm there yet. But boy, to be so saturated with God that, that we would be unable to distinguish with what was human and what has been divinely imparted. And so here's the thing. Jesus prayed for this and he prays that, that he and the Father would be in us and we would be in him. I, I got sad news, really sad news this week. A friend of mine in Africa, he's a more recent friend. He's not someone I've known since my childhood, but a really good guy. Uh, ran the uh, construction equipment stores that we buy building supplies from in, in Mozambique um, for that whole province, that whole area. Alex Steenberg, really great guy. I met him several years ago when I started buying supplies there and, and they connected me. They said, you need to talk to the guy who's in charge. And, and so I met Alex. And actually I met him because I met the CEO first who was over the entire company, uh, a guy by the name of Kevin Pitzer. And this week, uh, Friday morning, I woke up and... Uh, got up, had my cup of coffee, and I looked at my phone. My daughter's in Africa, so I want to make sure that I'm, if I'm hearing anything from her, and there was a message on my phone from Kevin uh, that he had put on social media saying, you know, we have sad news. Alex was in a car accident, and he'd passed away. And in fact, the tragedy kind of goes on from there. His whole family was in the car. Um, his two little kids, Nicole and Miguel, and they were in the back seat, and his wife, Sybil, was in the front seat with him. It was Sybil's birthday Friday, and they were going to celebrate and were in this horrible car accident, claimed his life immediately. And as we speak right now, uh, the doctors have given Sybil a 50-50 chance of survival. The kids know that their dad is gone now. Yeah, Kevin sent me an update. And I just, I wept. I cried. But yet I knew, I mean, I've been to Mozambique many, many times, and I can tell you that what I fear most going to Mozambique is not some rebel uprising or that somebody's going to shoot me. I don't fear that. The thing that concerns me the most is driving. I mean, the roads are bad. Some of you have been there. 
You can attest to this. It's crazy. So it was no surprise that I sit here and I go, oh my goodness, my friend is just gone. And his children might become orphans. And in that, I, I have, a, I have a, a small little bit of comfort because when I met Alex, the first time I met him and I, I extended my hand and shook his hand and I said, I'm Hendrik, I'm from America, but you know, I've got these connections here in Mozambique that go back to my childhood and we're working up the road here at the hospital. It's a church hospital and my parents were missionaries. That's why I was here. Right away in, that, in the first few paragraphs of our conversation, he goes, I am so glad you're here doing this. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. And he went on to very quickly tell me about his faith. And over the years, he has sent me pictures. Um, He helped build a church near where his home is. Because he deals in construction supplies. So he helped them build this building and sent me and showed me, hey, look, we got our church up and going. And then he sent me pictures. He built his own home out on a beach at Tofu, which is just one of the most beautiful places in the world. And he was so proud of it. And it was pretty crude and rustic compared to our homes over here in the United States. But he was very proud that he had built his home. And he introduced me to his wife, Sybil. And there have been times we went through the city of Mashish and we stopped to get things and I would see her because she's just a distinctive person. She's got gobs of energy and she's pretty vivacious in her personality. But she's also of mixed race, so she sticks out. A person who's of darker skin but beautiful green eyes. It just looks weird, but it's wonderful. And there's Sybil. And so I think about this and the grief of this, and yet at the same time, I recognize that God is in us, and we get to live in God. And in spite of the most horrendous, tragic circumstances, I can say, God, you can be at work here, and somehow you can get the glory. I don't understand it. I don't like it. I would reverse it if I could. Just as you would in the circumstances in your life or the people around you or that guy that just walks up to you and says, hey, can you give me five bucks of gas? And we recognize that whatever has happened here is horrible and this is not the way God would have it. But God can use this and he can do something with this. And we would believe in that. We would have incredible confidence in that because God is in us. And we, to take that a step farther and make it even more amazing than that, and we can be one together, we can be unified as he is one. And this week I I heard about a sister church of ours and another church that is part of our denomination that is incredibly, they're incredibly divided and they're not in agreement. And, and the, the disagreement has risen to the level where they're kind of uptight with each other. I mean, they're not, you know, getting each other down on the ground in the aisle and beating each other. But, you know, they're, they're not happy. And there's not unity there. And I look at that and I go, Lord, how will your kingdom flourish with your people when they're divided? And they, can't, they cannot beat back the forces of darkness because we're trying to beat each other. And yet God says, you know, if I'm in their heart and if they are in me, they will have all the glory that I had on earth. That's what Jesus said. In fact, there's another passage in the Gospels where Jesus says, you will go on to do greater things than I. Have any of you done something greater than Jesus? I just sit there and I go, I think, Lord, you're mistaken. 
I know the kinds of things that Hink does, and sometimes they're not great. And yet Christ said, you will go on to do greater things than me. And I think the key to that is when you come together as my body, what you do will be profound and significant beyond one person. And so I just want to suggest to you, if we're going to make a difference in this world, we're going to make a difference together or not at all. I know very few individuals who have the capacity to really bring about transformation of the gospel. But the body of Christ does. So let's talk a little bit about spiritual renewal then. How does this happen? How does it start in our hearts and work its way out? Well, there's things that happen when people's hearts change. And I don't have to tell too many of you about what this is like because you've experienced it. And here's the tricky part of it is when you haven't experienced experience what it's like to have your heart change, it's awfully difficult to explain. But I know that some of you have come to those places that, that life is so hard and it is so painful and it's so difficult that you've cried out to God and you say, Lord, do whatever you've got to do in me, but change me, change this stuff in my life. And when God goes to work and we resign ourselves and surrender to him, the transformation inside of us is it's amazing. It's incredible. And the peace God brings is incredible. My friend Greg is a pastor in Illinois and he posted something on social media this week. He lost a friend as well. And he had pictures of this guy. This is a guy that had uh, come to his church. He was a corrections officer, but he'd also served in the military. And he started coming to his church and kind of got involved in some things in their church and helped them uh, make a few little changes in some things in their church because of his background. He knew how to do some institutional change. And in that, they got to know each other better. And, 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 my, and Greg said, you know, and then at one point, I asked him, how is it that you came to Jesus Christ? And he shared the story of how he came to a point where he realized that he needed Christ as Savior. And the guy's words back were, and God changed me completely. <laughs> and, you know, I can't explain it, but I sat there at my computer nodding, going, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know what that looks like. And I've seen it in you. Hopefully you've seen it in me. See, God works in our hearts and then works his way out from there. So when our hearts are changed and we come alongside others, then we get to encounter God, not just as individuals, but we get to encounter God together. And when we do that, even more impressive things happen. Years ago, I had the opportunity of touring a church in St. Louis. And it's in a really rough part of St. Louis. It's right on the border, really, of Ferguson. And you guys know what Ferguson's like. And this church, Missionary Temple Baptist Church. No, sorry, Friendly Temple Missionary Baptist Church. Uh, and, and we went there, and we met with the senior pastor. And th- we went, and th- this place was interesting because... It, it was an old warehouse, and if you've been downtown St. Louis, you know the old warehouse district along uh, the riverfront and then coming back from there uh, toward Forest Park are these big, huge brick buildings that have been there for a long time. It was one of those buildings. 
And so we come up to the front, and it was thoroughly unimpressive. It was this old brick building, and there were a couple of double doors on the front, and they weren't glass. You couldn't see in. They were just steel doors. And we got out of the vans. There were like uh, 15 or 20 of us that were going to do the tour. And we walked up to these doors, and a guy met us and unlocked the doors, and we went inside. And we went inside through the offices. There was, there was some office space there, and they led us through, and then they brought us in. And they sat us down in a big conference room, about as big as this room is. And it was gorgeous. It had crown molding, oak crown molding, and it had beautiful carpet and this enormous conference table. And every chair around the table was like an executive desk chair. You know what I'm talking about. On wheels and it spins. And, and they go, go ahead and have a seat. So we sat down and we're just like, wow, this is like covert. Who would know? Pastor came in and he talked to us about the church there and their ministry and their philosophy of ministry and he said now I want to show you the rest of the church so we walked through, walked through and he took us into the sanctuary and we came through these doors and all of a sudden it opened up to this enormous room and there were all these chairs in there uh, and, and I think it seated about 2,000 people and then he went on to say you know we have four or five services on a weekend <laughs> I'm doing the math that's about 10,000 people and um, we asked him about this we said you know you could drive by and not know this place is even here. There's not even a really good sign on the front. And you come inside here, and this is incredible. And he goes, well, we have a philosophy of here. We think this is the way God works. He rearranges what's on the inside, and then it works its way out. That's pretty good theology. And in fact, he said, we're so concerned and convicted about this that we're going to start here and we're going to change this building. We're, we're doing incredible stuff together and we're going to change the whole community. And our plan is that this entire neighborhood knows Jesus and it's going to change this whole neighborhood. And I'm telling you, that guy had a prophetic voice. And then as we, we looked around, some of us who have been pastors for a while realized that the kind of systems and infrastructure it, it takes to transform a huge warehouse into a functioning church. Like we started asking him more questions. How did you do this? And then he went on to say this. And I thought this was great. He goes, you know, we've got people who come to this church that are highly trained. We've got engineers and lawyers, and they're, they're right down near Forest Parks. There's some big, huge uh, medical facilities. They've got doctors and nurses. But he said, you know, we went to the people, and we said, whatever you do, we want you to do it for God. And that means that at any moment pastor may call you up and say, oh, by the way, we need an engineer to help us figure out this space. And we, oh, you're a lawyer. We need you to go to the city and get us a zoning variant so that we can do this. And he said, our belief is if you're a person of influence who comes here, you become part of us. And that means that you do what we do. You do it with us. And so he said, we've never paid an architect a dime. We've never paid an engineer a dime. We've never paid a lawyer a dime to get all the legal approval for what we do. And some of us sat there and go, I don't know how that works. And all I can say is that the people have come there and they have found such a unity together. They're of one heart that all of them would say, you know what I do? I will do it for God. And it's changing them. See, Changed hearts work together as one, and when we do that, incredible things happen. And then I would just suggest that when we start to come together and we put our hearts together, that God leads us to tear down and change and create new systems. 
and I use those words intentionally because I think there are some systems that need to be taken down. I'll talk about that very quickly in a moment. There are some systems that just need to be altered and rearranged because at their heart they're good, they're intended for good things, but they're not doing good things. And then there's some that just don't exist. Nobody's doing it. So if spiritual renewal happens that way where a heart encounters a heart and those hearts come together to God and God begins to do something in community, then he gets the glory. The glory goes to God. You see, there's a lot to be said with how the world sees Jesus. And when we talk to people about how they see Jesus, there are a lot of people out there that go, you know, I like Jesus, but his followers are terrible. In fact, there's some really famous quotes from some famous people about that, and we've given them a lot of ammo. The, the thing is that I wish there were more consistency with what people see in the body of Christ as what they see in Jesus Christ. Because I think if they saw Jesus through us, they would throw their arms open to us. The trouble is we distort the image of Jesus and we make it other things, oftentimes to our own desires, and then people are not attracted. They don't care and they don't want it. But when you see what is authentically Christ in the heart of a human, many of you know that's an irresistible thing. It's an irresistible thing. So when you see a person and Jesus is authentically, really genuinely there, and then all of a sudden you see that person connected together with other people, powerful things happen. And when those people start to work together, systems come into being. They're created. And this is where God gets the glory because then people go, well, how did you do this? So we sat there with this pastor. How did you do this? And at one point he goes, you guys are missing the point. I don't do this. God does this. I'm just the pastor. It's the body of Christ that does this. And he was wonderfully humble in giving away praise, not just to his people, but more importantly, to the Lord and Savior who was doing that great work. This is God's work, and that's why this is happening. And so here's the thing. As we look at that, when there are systems that need to be deactivated or taken down, God, through his people, will do it. And in fact, there's a terminology for this in, in Scripture. And I went back and I did a little bit of a study. There, there's a term in, that's used in Scripture, predominantly in the Old Testament. It talks about strongholds. And strongholds was kind of a military term that was used for a place, an edifice, a building that was very strong and defensible. And so any group of people that came together, not just a person, but a group of people came together, they built this, and usually they built it in a geographically strategic place so that it was easy to defend, and that became our stronghold. And we might be out in the fields and you attack, but if we get time to run into our city and close the doors and get into our stronghold, you can lay siege, but we will not be beaten. And so there are, there are scriptures, and the psalmist talks about we're fleeing to the stronghold of God. But there's also scriptures where Jesus then talks back, particularly in the prophets, and he says, you know, I am going to tear down 
strongholds. And one of my favorite weird scriptures, he says, you know, their strongholds will become a place where the hyenas and jackals roam. I love that passage because I know what hyenas and jackals are like. And if they're there, nobody else is. They're just the scavengers picking up the trash. And Jesus says, I'm going to tear down those strongholds of Christ. The Lord says, I'm going to tear them down and I'm going to leave them to a place where only those garbage collectors would go. And so here's what I think, and I I believe that we as Christians need to have in our minds that those strongholds, those physical places, represent spiritual places. They, They represent systems and also geographic places, and and I don't have time to go into that this morning, but I believe that God is in the business of tearing down strongholds, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, a, a, a way out on a limb, and I'm going to suggest to you that I believe that what has happened in the Middle East in the last 10 years to, to 20 years in our history is the process of God tearing down a stronghold. And, and if you want to know more about my opinion on that, I'd be happy to, to tell you in person. But I also know in my own life there are things that have been set up and things that I have relied on. I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this because if I do this, I'm going to be okay. And then the Lord comes along and he just starts to tear down that stronghold because he wants me to believe him more than me. He will do that with us as individuals. He'll do that with us as a church. He'll do that with us as a nation because God wants to have free reign over everywhere. And then God will marshal us and say, I want you to do this. I want you to break these chains. I want you to tear down and destroy these strongholds because that is my will and you will do my will. That's what we pray, right? Not my will, but yours be done. And so when I start talking to you about, you know, I wish there were another way to engage in poverty in Wichita or in the world or in Mozambique, wherever we're talking about, I have this deep conviction down in the depths of my soul that this is a spiritual work of God tearing down strongholds that take people from where God wants them to be. That enchains them to things that he does not condone. That places them in places where they think they are secure, but they're fooling themselves. So I want to end with this passage of scripture. And I, as I read this this week, I decided, you know, I think next year for 2019, I usually take a passage of scripture and kind of make that my scripture for the year. Um, I think this is going to be mine because this just disconnected with me in a very deep way. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds, there it is, of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious hearts, uh, sorry, their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. And I just, I read that and I, I just fixated on there in verse 5. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. Let's do that. Band, come on up. Let's, uh, let's sing in closing.